welcome to Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and as a Mito patient myself, I appreciate you and the community you've helped us to build. This podcast honors the triumphs and struggles of patients and families affected by this disease and celebrates the work being done by doctors and researchers every day to make it a safer world for our people. We are a support group and a podcast focusing on all things related to mitochondrial disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Energy in Action. Today, we welcome Josie, who is a mito patient and someone that I feel really connected to someone that I I nod my head so much when she speaks and and I feel at one with her story and I'm so looking forward to everyone being able to hear her story the way I've been able to. So Josie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. So before we kick it off, I want to let our audience know that as a Mito patient, Josie's voice is something that she struggles with. So right now, I think her voice sounds beautiful. Every day when we've talked, I think her voice sounds beautiful. But if it goes in and out a little bit. Let's all be compassionate. We all have things that we struggle with within the Mito community. So Josie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your life looked like before you were part of the Mito community? Uh, yes. Well, before I joined the Mito community, I, I was, uh, I am uh, a medical oncologist. I used to treat newly diagnosed uh, cancer patients and um, my other specialty was after they're done with treatment, I used to take care of them to help them get back on their feet. Um, when treatment is done, uh, cancer s- survivors know that there's still a lot of healing to be done physically, emotionally, functionally, financially. And I, I used to help them try to get back on their feet and find some sort of new normal. And that was the passion is was the passion of my life and it's it's uh, combined uh, past tense and, and current tense because some of that identity I still am although I can't practice it anymore but I guess I still I still am it's who you are yes regardless of whether you're doing it on a daily basis yes and then over the years and in hindsight maybe 15 20 years my stamina became less and less and we always blamed it on something else because i had other health issues so we thought it's this it's that um then i got cancer myself and we thought it's from all the treatments and there was always a reason why we thought that explains why i feel the way i feel and i had to give in at work because i couldn't physically round on the inpatient floor anymore it's very hard to stand for hours at a time and then we were trying to figure out can I go in a wheelchair but you still have to get out of the wheelchair to examine some somebody or it becomes a whole complicated thing so I gave up one thing after the other um, and, and inpatient rounding was the first thing it went was too intense and then I developed COVID in when when did COVID start? 2020? Yeah, so I had COVID and that made me go to the hospital. And luckily, I'm one of the people who was able to leave the hospital. Uh, but it really put me on an accelerated course. I went from cane to scooter to power chair. And we didn't understand why. They all thought it's long COVID. And then I started having trouble with breathing. And then I started having trouble with sitting up. And then 
in December of 2021, all of a sudden my voice left me. And I thought I have laryngitis, but it didn't go away. And then I took a little time off to rest, thinking that that will make the difference, but it didn't. And so that is that is sort of where really everything went into a faster path. Around the same time that my mobility started to decline, several of my physicians who treat me, take care of me, told me, you know, it could be mitochondrial disease, but that's very rare. And it's probably not. But when several doctors started telling me that, I was like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I should look into that. And so I scheduled an appointment with one of my local uh, mitochondrial doctors. I'm very happy that I live very close to one in the city of Pittsburgh. And even then, though, I had to wait quite a while. Um, but I happened to see him right around the time my voice was giving in. and that's when things started to fall into place and he diagnosed me and that helped me at work because now we understood what was happening and it helped me understand what was going on because I thought, you know, I'm, I must be going cuckoo. What's, what's wrong with me? But now I understand what was going on with me. And so that made all the difference and so a lot of people ask me, aren't you frustrated or upset or with your diagnosis? And I think my story in many ways explains why I'm not, because I finally have some sort of understanding of what's going on with me. For years, I've been thinking, you know, I'm going crazy, but now I know I'm not. I have an answer. And even though it's not a nice answer, because it's... It's something that's not curable. Um, I'm still able to draw out some, some peace of mind out of that, that I finally understand what I have without diagnosis. Without diagnosis, I would have been in big trouble because I would not have been able to work and I, I would have had to quit or something along those lines and I wouldn't have had salary and now, because of the diagnosis, I'm able to go on disability and I'm getting some salary, which makes all the difference for a family to be able to stay in, in the home we're in. And you can imagine all the other consequences of not having a diagnosis. And so I'm so grateful that I saw my mitochondrial specialist at the time I saw him, because my, my life could have looked very, very differently without a diagnosis. You have such a deep understanding for medical science as an oncologist yourself. There's such a wide range of illnesses and, and conditions, you know, throughout the world and, and much more outside of, of oncology. I'm sure from your perspective, it, as you said, you felt like you were going cuckoo. And I'm sure it was very scary because you couldn't put the pieces together. And for someone that is so intelligent, I'm sure that felt very like that you were up against a wall, that you were, you know, fighting against something that you couldn't win. And I'm sure that that was really difficult mentally for you. So I'm sure that this diagnosis does give you some peace of mind. And because it's mitochondrial disease, and it is, again, so rare that, you know, you can feel a little bit better, like, okay, well, that wasn't in my radar of something that I, maybe I had. 
but you know, I, I can live with this now and, and you've done such a great job, but you know, focus on reinventing yourself, but I want to make sure I understand. So you were giving up responsibilities within your within your career, within your position at the hospital before you even had your mitochondrial di- diagnosis because things were going so awry, correct? Yes. You know, in every academic institution, it's it's like they, they don't understand. They, they need to have justification because the inpatient service needs to be um, running, which means they need to have physicians who run that everybody takes so many weeks. So if I had to give up on my amount of weeks, who is going to fill that? Right. And my colleagues, you know, my boss, they're all wondering, scratching, why is she doing this? And, you know, you can imagine there's all kinds of different judgments being passed. For sure. Because nobody, whether they say it or not, and I, I can't blame them, they have a business to run, if that's how you call it. Yeah. And they didn't understand why is Josie doing this, but I just literally couldn't couldn't physically do it. And it hurt me because I loved doing it. What made you go into oncology? I didn't know what I wanted to be, to tell you the truth. And I grew up in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, they don't have college. So when high school finishes, when you're 18, you go straight into the school of the profession that you have chosen when you're 18, which is pretty young to make a decision. And so like everybody else in the Netherlands, I was like, what am I going to do? So I was in debate with myself about many different things as, as an enthusiastic, passionate learner. I, I had many, many ideas, but eventually I landed on medicine. But I didn't didn't make medicine because in the in the Netherlands at that time they had a lottery system, and in order to get into medical school you need to have good grades, and the more good grades you had, then the system's different now. The more good grades you had, the more sort of balls you can pull out of the lottery system, and I didn't make it. So then I was like, okay, well that's that's maybe decided for me, and I was sad because. After a lot of mind soul searching, I really had made up my mind I want to do medicine, and then it didn't work. But then three months later, they told me, you know what, somebody dropped out, and you're high on the waiting list, so you can come. So the next day, I pivoted, and I sat in, in one of those, you know, fancy medical school, huge classrooms, with 150 other classmates attending medical school, trying to catch up. And I felt in my place um, for so many reasons. One of them is physiology. I'm really fascinated in physiology, trying to understand how something works, how it's amazing that things go so well in our body so often until it doesn't. And then understanding where diseases come from. And that's why you're right. It drove me bananas that I've learned about all these metabolic processes in medical school. And I didn't, I didn't put one-on-one together. You know, you learn about it as some theoretical possibility, but I'd never seen a patient with it really. And not at all for somebody who is in my, I'm in my forties. You know, I thought this is diagnosed early. This is not a possibility for me who's so old. And so I was like, how 
how did I not put one on one together? But I just didn't. Denial maybe is another part of it. But what I also like of medicine is the interactive piece. Talking with the other person and trying to figure out who they are, what is their philosophy in life, how would they want to be treated, and and putting it together with family history. It's sort of like, um, I like mysteries, detectives, but this is also a mystery. Sitting with somebody and trying to understand what, what's going on here. And how does it affect them and everybody around them and how to best help them? And it's just fascinating to be able to give somebody relief. And that is just one of the other many reasons why I really like medicine. You can make such a big difference in someone's life. And um, that gave me the drive to wake up. And that's why I, I guess I fought, if that's the word to use, I fought so long. And just, you know, it's, it's, it was in the end, it was hard for me to go to clinic, outpatient clinic, because my parking and my walking to the clinic already exhausted me. So I found a way around it. I went earlier and I rested there before clinic started. So I have, you know, I ate, I had a whole system to optimize myself for, um, and then I was very happy that COVID allowed me to work from home virtually, um, which saved me having to walk to, to the clinic. But then in the end, even talking was hard for me. And so why am I telling you this? Um, it, it's, it's, I tried really, really hard to hold on to it. But in the end, I just didn't. It couldn't, couldn't work anymore. And everything somehow came together the right the right way. I met my doctor, mito doctor, at the right time, and now on disability. And in uh, in a few months, I will have been home for two years. Um, I'm homebound, so that's really a change. But um, two years have flown by, and now I'm trying to um, help in different ways, which is, I think, one of the things maybe you wanted to talk about. I used to do signs, meaning I used to write trials and studies and um, execute them and recruit patients. But now I'm a participant. I, I help studies that advance the the science of, of mitochondrial disease. I try to help educate. And one of the reasons I participate in your podcast here today is to help educate, raise, raise awareness. Um, I'm trying to still do my job, although in a different way, in a different role. And it makes me feel like I have a meaning, I have a purpose still. I still mean something on this this earth. I can still help other people. I remember something that my boss said to me when I came to him and said, I really don't think that I can come back to this job, or I know that I can't come back to this job. And I was hysterically crying in a public place at a Starbucks. And, and he said to me, just, you you can't be disappointed with yourself because you've done so well in the years that you gave it your all, you know? And, you know, he could see me struggling and 
And he knew that I didn't deserve to feel that struggle, that I gave it my all, and that I need to be able to peacefully walk away from it. And that's that's a very hard thing to do. I'm getting emotional a couple years later still talking about it, but it's a really hard thing to make such a pivot in your life when when your career is such a big part of your identity, you know, and, and for you, you were a hero in so many families' lives and you were you were literally keep you know, changing their life and keeping people alive and and getting them back home with their families. And I hope that you can feel so good about how hard you worked when you could do it, you know? And you walking away is not any function of, you know, you not wanting to be there anymore. It's just sometimes so hard to see on the daily basis, you know? Correct. So once you got your diagnosis, is that when you kind of put everything in in place for disability? Is that when you eventually, like, how, how did that whole process go when you really needed to kind of leave, leave your work at the hospital um, as an oncologist? Was it a lot of talks with your husband. How did that all go? That's a good question. Part of it is that I, I it was one big blur almost um, of a lot of paperwork and me really not having a lot of choice in the matter because I had lost my voice. So when you lost your voice, that was kind of the last straw. And I, I, I decided... Um, I'm going to try this two more weeks. This was the middle of December, sort of. I, I may not remember 100% everything correctly, but this was the middle of December, and I, I tried to see the ENT doctor right away, and I didn't have laryngitis. There was something really wrong with, with my voice, and um, having slowly... Not that slow, really. Uh, putting the pieces together with what the mitochondrial doctor had told me, and I double checked with him. I said, you know, um, it looks like my voice is a mitochondrial problem, doesn't it? And he, he said yes. And I, I said, well, let me let me take two more weeks because my clinics were packed. But I squeaked my way through those clinics, and I basically told patients, you know, I'm I'm going to take some time off. I may or may not be back, which is really, really hard to do. Um, and then I took a month off all my vacation. I put it together to still not have to go on disability because once the clock start ticking, you lose that time. So that was a hard decision to make. Am I going to burn through all my vacation? And I decided yes, um, because I, I want to really make sure before I go on disability. And that gives me time to think with my husband. So I guess we took that month to think for me to rest and see if resting makes a difference, which it didn't. And then when the month was almost done, I spoke again with my mito doctor. I said, what, what do you think? And at that time, he had diagnosed me clinically but sent off genetic results. And when I called him to ask him, hey, you know, I, I need to know what to do. Can I go back to work next week or, or what? And then he swallowed. You know that big swallow somebody does on the phone and it was right next to that, you know, where, where I hear the sound through the phone. So I was like, oh. And he said, Josie. And I said, yes. I got your results yesterday and I was going to call you today. I'm like, okay. And he said, you can't go back to work. 
I'm like, well, why? And I can still remember this almost exactly, although my, my, probably your memory distorts it a little bit. He said, you have, you have the mutation. It all makes sense. Everything falls into place. And this is not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And you, you need to go on disability. I said, okay, well, then I know what to do. Thank you. And that's that's how I hung up the phone because I was going to see him anyway a week later in clinic. But I, I needed to start with, with my paperwork and now I knew what to do. And so he he kind of decided for me. He said, you can't go back to work. And my husband said, yes, that totally makes sense. And I felt such a relief when he said that because I was like, how, how am I going to make this happen? Because work is a lot of responsibility, a lot of, and was like, how, how am I supposed to physically do this? And it did, I didn't need to do it anymore. It, it was off my back. Yeah, yeah. I think too, when you talk to someone who doesn't have a mitochondrial condition, it's so hard for them to even understand the little pieces of the day, like walking from your car into the office, you know, doing the the tasks related to your job that that require you to be standing that that people don't think anything about if it's not difficult for them you know and being able to you know get through all of these little pieces that are so difficult for us throughout the day plus overcoming you know such a severe fatigue level and then all of the other symptoms that we deal with you know for you it's your voice and uh, and you know I I believe you have some issues with breathing and you know for me it's my chronic back pain and calf pain and it, there there's just no getting past that plus all of the little things throughout the day I mean I remember thinking the same thing about walking from my car into the office. And it's like, that's not what you put on paper for disability, but it is something that was part of the, the crisis for me. So so what are the symptoms now that are kind of plaguing you with mostly? What's your biggest challenges with the mitochondrial disease today? Well, that varies. I probably should say to those who are listening that I'm, I'm now also an experimental medicine called um which is a difficult word, um, but there are no treatments for mitochondrial disease, but for some reason, the lucky stars are lined up that way for me as well right now, is that they had this medicine available on study uh, when I was diagnosed, and I was like, okay, well, I, I don't have anything to lose. Let's try that. So we've been on this now for one and a half year. And that medicine, um, everybody has a different response. But in my case, it seems to have made some things better and some things it doesn't seem to have an impact. And so together with the natural course of the disease, which has waves as well, it's hard to understand what is what, if I make sense. Um, what is the natural course of the disease? What is... Um, affected by the medicine in a good or a negative way and everybody responds different to the, to the medicine but overall most people have some some benefit although I initially the first few months I was on the medicine I dipped down so what are my biggest problems right now I think the biggest problem is stamina I can walk steps in my home very very little but I walk at home in my home but when I leave my home I'm in a power chair 
that reclines in zero gravity, which is really good because sitting up is a problem for me. Sitting up like anybody else sits in a chair. So I'm usually half laying down in a zero gravity position, takes least amount of energy. My bowels move slower um, because bowels are a muscle too. And so that require energy for, for motion. So that's that I take medicines for that. And then for the most part, that works okay. Um, so basically any body part in my body that requires energy has, has a problem, more or less. Breathing is a problem. My breathing muscles, I'm on a ventilator overnight and during the day um, when I need it, I can use it to help my breathing muscles. And if I can take a deeper breath, my voice is stronger. I have trouble with dystonia, which is an involuntary spasm of muscles in different parts of my body. But at the current time, it's really bothering me in my throat, my pharynx and my larynx. So it affects my voice. As, as I keep talking here, you will hear it um, become more squeezy and it affects my swallowing. So what else is my brain? Sometimes brain cells need a lot of energy. Sometimes my brain slows down or shuts down. I take a nap in the afternoon to help me get through the day. So those are, I think, am I missing anything? Those are, I think, the, the biggies. There's there's more, but um, that's one thing that made me think I'm going cuckoo because all these body parts are having an issue. I was like, what is going on with me? But if there is a very basic foundational problem in your body, like energy metabolism, it can affects many parts of your body. It's actually one of the red flags. If, if there is many things wrong in your body, um, think about the basics. Is there something wrong in the very foundation of how your body functions? And that is something that really, really was a learning lesson for me. Thank you for sharing all that. I know it's so difficult to go through and think about all of the areas that we lack in, you know, kind of changing subjects a little bit, you told me about how you were going through training in psychotherapy. And I wanted to kind of tell our listeners about that training and how it's helped you find peace to accept what is. I was really inspired when we talked about that the last time we were together. And I, I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing from you on that topic. That's an unusual route, I guess, as a physician. Why would you want to do therapy, psychotherapy, but um, I'm really fascinated by people's minds. Like we're, we're all having such a, an interesting psyche and that drives what we do um, and determines how we act. And I, I think it's fascinating and it helps if you understand someone's psyche, it, it helps you take care of them as well in, in terms of being a physician and so i went into this of I, I want to try to become more of a holistic comprehensive physician and so i try to find a way to do that as a physician and as a, a medical physician and a physical physician not a psychiatrist but as a as a as a physical physician it's really hard for you to do some sort of extra training that gives you a degree that allows you to do talk therapy. But I, I found a way through the American Psychoanalytic Association, I think, 
and I approached them and I figured out that they have a local chapter. And so in my free time, I did theory classes and I, I did psychotherapy under supervision as, as a way for me to enrich myself, as a way for me to um, help my day job, um, but also perhaps as a backup for when I can't do my day job anymore, then I still have another job to sit and listen. Uh, although it's 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 um, not that easy. It's more complicated than that because you have to listen actively and you have to be energetic enough to jump to 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 react in a way um, that allows somebody to understand themselves better, and that takes a lot of energy too. Um, but it was perhaps a backup plan for me to do psychotherapy if I can't do my day job anymore. Um, and so that is where that came from. Um, it, it took a lot of extra energy, but it also was very um, fascinating to me. But then, sadly, that had to stop too when I lost my voice, because for, for psychotherapy, you do need to have a voice. And you need to have energy to listen. So. That had to stop too, but at that point I had finished all my classes and so I finished with an academic degree. Um, I was just a, a little bit short of meeting my clinical criteria, so I didn't finish with a clinical degree, but I was, was almost done and that to me is, it's enough. I tried. Like you said, I've given it my all. I've tried it. I've, I've prepared for every possible, but you never know. What's really going to hit you? I didn't know I was going to lose my voice. I didn't know I was going to lose my breathing muscles. And this is, you know, I tried. But hearing how motivated you were as an oncologist to help your patients once they were ready to kind of get back into their lives, you know, to help them reacclimate themselves, it's not surprising to me that you would want to go into psychotherapy and kind of better understand that piece of it because there's a mental component of, you know, so many, most anything related to medicine, you know, going through it yourself or a family member. And it sounds like you were such a wonderful doctor doctor to, to have worked with. I'm sure your patients were so appreciative of that extra care level. So, you know, you going to the psychotherapy training, I'm, I'm sure that all you wanted to do was to be even better than the best, you know, and, and hopefully you can, again, be at peace knowing that you really, you, you wanted to do everything you possibly could. So I know that you said you try to do some volunteer work now related to in the cancer world. So tell us a little bit about what you've been able to accomplish. One thing to note is that it was really hard to have to stop my clinic abruptly because I wasn't able to have closure with many of my patients. And as a matter of fact, many of them weren't told until when their appointment was due and so they heard it in in different ways and and you never would have wanted that yeah no i wanted to tell them myself but that for many reasons you know i wasn't possible for my health reasons and the fact that the institution has their own protocols of dealing with this and i have to abide by that and so it didn't that was very hurtful to 
to have to abandon, if that's the word to use, my, my patients are not my patients, but you get my point. They were your patients, of course. Yeah, that, that was very hurtful. But I, I can't help myself. I am who I am, and I always find a way. The first year was very, very busy dealing with all this disability paperwork. But once I started climbing out of that and things started to find some new homeostasis, a new balance in my life, um, I started to, you know, find little ways that allow me to be helpful, I guess. Uh, and one of them is our local nonprofit, Cancer Bridges. Cancer Bridges is, is, um, is a house, literally, it's, it's a facility in a part of town here where they support cancer patients and their caregivers and their children, uh, whether they're going through their active journey or whether they're healing from what they've gone through. And part of what they do is they have a workshop for those who are transitioning from the active treatment phase to the long-term survivorship phase. And I am part of that workshop, um, which sounds more than it is. Um, and believe it or not, I, I, I try to give a few times a year as part of that workshop a virtual lecture to talk about the medical aspects of, of healing. And sometimes that's a little difficult to do. And so Cancer Bridges jumps around and changes the date to accommodate whether my voice is strong enough or not. And as a backup, we have recorded it. So worst case, they will show my recording. Um, so we're prepared for for everything. And then I can be there to answer questions in the end if they show the recording. Um, but that's one of the things that I'm still trying trying to help. I had helped set that up when I was working and so it's really nice that they allow me that they allow me to work with them even though I'm somewhat impaired. And I thank them for that every time because they easily could have said, you know what, we don't want somebody who's who's falling apart, but they, they don't. They continue to include me and that is for me, something to be very grateful for because they could have said no. Why would you want to work with somebody who's so unpredictable, who's so inconsistent? But that speaks to Cancer Bridges, how they're willing to adjust to what's happening in front of them with their patients, with their speakers. They recognize the value of Josie. They recognize the the value you bring to their organization and and they understand that everybody has has a different set of circumstances. And if they can work around, you know, your needs, then they can still get so much out of your knowledge and your insight and create such meaning for your life. Yeah, it, it really, really does. It's, it's very important for me. I look forward to doing that. And I prepare for it, meaning I, I rest around. Yeah. Around the session. Yes. Yeah. Like I did with you. The other thing that I probably should, should share is um, a website called cancer survivor MD medical doctor.org. And that's something I set up when I was still working. It's my thing. It's not part of any organization. It's my own website where I wrote blogs and I went live on, on, social media to empower cancer survivors in their healing journey. And that's partially driven by my 
background as a physician, as a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, and as a cancer survivor myself. And um, I loved doing that. But also that had to be put on hold. I, writing blocks is, is hard to have the physical concentration, writing it down, cleaning it up. And so bottom line is I'm doing that a little less. Um, but I'm still doing it to some degree. Very unpredictable. When I feel strong enough, I post something mostly on social media. Well, we can include a link to it in the show notes. So I'll make sure that we do that. Because even if you're part of the mitochondrial community and you don't have a loved one with cancer, I'm sure you can still benefit from some of the things that you've written. And if you do have someone that is, um, you know, a cancer survivor, or or in cancer treatment, it's a great tool for for them to be able to pass on to their friends and family. So we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. You're doing such a great job at continuing to give your life meaning, and I'm so inspired by you. And I hope that everyone in our community can find a way to kind of keep their toe dipped into the world that means something to them, you know, and I feel like you've done a really good job with that. And I'm so excited that we can share your story with our community. So thank you so much for being part of our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. What you do makes a difference. You give people a voice. And that is that is amazing. And I like how you facilitate this so you bring out the best of people. Just just thank you for, for giving me the opportunity today to sit down with you and, and talk. I'm giving you a big hug. Oh, I'm giving you a big hug. <laughs> You're the best. I've so enjoyed getting to know you. And I know that we will continue to develop our, our relationship and, and continue our, our friendship. So thank you, Josie. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Energy in Action. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to browse other Energy in Action podcast episodes. I'm so inspired by the resilience of those in previous episodes, and I know you will be too. 